invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. The title of the message today is Your New Marriage. If you're a child of God, you've been married. You've been grafted in as part of the body of Christ. I'll explain a little bit more of that later, but this past year I had um, a significant event in my life. I, I celebrated, my wife and I celebrated our 30th anniversary. We've known each other. Well, thank you. Uh, my birthday was Friday. Okay. Thanks, I was 40. I'm, I'm from Georgia. They let you get married when you're 10 there, okay? We celebrated our 30th anniversary, and, and in thinking about that, in fact, if we were at the Carolina Opry right now, Steve Sipper would be making a joke about, you know, celebrating their 30th anniversary. And, oh, well, here's something interesting. Their 31-year-old son, Oops, is with us. Some of you have to think about that one a minute. And God has blessed us with four children. As I come to this passage, though, thinking about marriage, thinking about marriage, Paul has been teaching up to this point in Romans about the penalty of sin and the fact that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And now he comes to more explanation of this, kind of unpacking a little bit more. And Paul asks questions sometimes in these scriptures, and he does it again in in chapter 7, where Paul is thinking about opposition that he may be having to what he's writing. Now, keep in mind, this letter is written to the church at Rome, and the church at Rome had new believers, some of whom were had a, had a Jewish background, others of, of whom did not have a Jewish background. We know that there were members of the church at Rome, people who would eventually become Christians, were there on the day of Pentecost when the disciples preached and, and thousands came to trust the Lord. Some of those people have gone back home now to Rome, and so Paul years later, after their salvation, is writing a letter to Rome. And I think he's either hearing opposition that he's addressing in his letter, or he's imagining as he outlines and unpacks the teaching of this letter, he's thinking, you know what, some of them are going to be thinking this. And so he had been accused as, keep in mind, Paul considered himself a Jew among Jews. As to the law, perfect. And yet now he counted all of that as rubbish. His whole background of keeping the law, Paul now looked at and realized, that didn't get me saved. That's not what brought salvation to me. So he's going to unpack that understanding here. Let me read the first three verses of this passage, and let's start with this first point of, till death do us part. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So Paul says, first of all, do you not know? He's used this before. He used it even in the passage we looked at last week. Do you not know? Paul is thinking what I'm sharing with you should be a no-brainer. It should be common knowledge. 
But he's saying, do you not understand? Is it that you lack information or do you lack intelligence? And Paul is saying it's one or the other of those two things. Either you haven't understand, understood the teaching to this point or you just, you know, the elevator's not quite making it all the way to the top, but let me help you get it there. It's stuck on the third floor, and we need to get it all the way to the fifth floor. So let me help you here. Do you not know? Do you not understand? And then in parentheses, he makes this parenthetical statement. He says, I'm speaking to those of you who know law. And I think he's specifically, because he uses the word brethren, he's basically saying, hey, keep in mind, I am one of you. Not only am I a believer, a Christian, but I was raised as a Jew, so you could put me in the category of a Jewish Christian. But certainly the people that he writes to, whether they were from a Jewish background or not, they knew the Roman law or they knew the law of the Old Testament. And for too many of these people who grew up as Jews, they had so elevated the law that they had virtually made an idol out of it. And their thinking is the way you get to heaven is by perfectly keeping the law of God. In fact, they had added laws to the law to help them keep the law perfectly. And when they realized that didn't really work, some of them had actually started thinking, well, let's just reduce the law down to just a few things. If we can't keep these 600 and some odd commandments we've come up with. And I say we've come up with because some of the commandments they had come up with that were kind of extra. Not what God had told them. It's just they had added stuff to the commandments God had given them. So they kind of thought, well, maybe if we can just get it down to two or three. That's what I believe is behind the question that Jesus has asked when he's asked, you remember, what's the greatest commandment? I think some people were thinking, I can't keep all these laws. Just give me one, and I'll do my best to keep it. And if your thinking is, by doing the one, I'm going to get to heaven, what Paul is saying is it doesn't work that way. Keeping the law is not going to bring about salvation. In fact, God has taken care of that because it could not bring about salvation. The law has jurisdiction. In fact, it's the root word that we get the word Lord. When you say Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it's the Greek word kurios. And that's a form of this word here. He's basically saying the law is Lord, has jurisdiction, as long as you're living. Once you die, you're not bound by that law anymore. This was kind of going back to the fact they had slaves in the first century. In the New Testament church, there were slaves. And that slave was bound to the master until the slave died. He, didn't, he wasn't bound any longer. Lee Harvey Oswald shot John F. Kennedy. But Lee Harvey Oswald himself was shot, and so he never went on trial and was never convicted for shooting the president. Why? Because he's dead. The law doesn't apply anymore. Sentence has already been carried out. And so Paul's saying the law has jurisdiction only as a man lives. And that's really recapping what he's just said in chapter 6. But now he gives us an illustration. And the illustration he uses is one of marriage. And I want you to listen carefully because if you're not careful, if you don't pay attention here, you're going to miss something. He says, a married woman is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's no longer bound by the law. Now, women, this is not an opportunity to think, okay, because so i got to bump him off. <laughs> no. No. And he unpacks it a little bit further. And says, listen, if, if a married woman goes and attaches herself, joins herself to another man, then she's committing adultery. She shall be called an adulteress. Why? Because she's being unfaithful to her marriage vows. And we'll call her an adulteress. But if her husband passes away, she's now released from the law. She's no longer bound to that obligation, to that commitment 
that she made in marriage. I know that, uh, that some people in modern days, contemporary times, have actually changed marriage vows. They don't say, you know, until death do us part anymore. But that is God's plan for marriage. You are committed to the marriage relationship until death do us part. If, if I perform your wedding, we still say that. And there's people that ask me to marry them a lot of times when they realize how seriously I take marriage and that you're actually going to have to do counseling and that kind of stuff with me. They're like, no, we just we want something a little simpler than that. We just want like 10-minute ceremony on the beach. Well, that's okay, but that's just not what I'm a part of. And if you kind of want to change your vow to say, you know, as long as we both show love, we're not going there. Because marriage is a commitment. There's a lot of sacrifice involved in marriage. In fact, I've told people, you know, most of you think when you come to marriage, it's a 50-50 proposition. You're in trouble if you believe that. Because you're going to think you're giving 75% and she's only giving 25%. Or you're going to think, ladies, that he's never quite equaling up to his 50%. No, marriage is 100%. And hopefully, you receive 100% in return. But your commitment is to the Lord, to that marriage. And so Paul uses this example of a married woman going and attaching herself to another man. And we say by that, she's committing adultery. In fact, the word is she's, she would be called an apostate, somebody who's walked away from the faith. It dawned on me as I was studying this. I understand that. But Paul's been talking about you're now dead to the law. You've got to understand, the husband dying does not represent the law. The law has not died. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in the rest of this passage. The law is not what died. The thing that joined them together is what died. The woman who still lives is dead to that law. But why? Because her husband has passed away. She's now free, liberated, free to go and join herself to another man. And in the eyes of God, that is perfectly fine. In fact, from Paul's own teaching, he encourages women under a certain age, that's what you should do. If your husband dies, you should go and be remarried or be married to another man. So it's not the law that has died, it's that commitment to it. And what happens in Christ, when you come to Christ, it's not that the law was a bad thing, it's not that the law has died, but you have died to the law. I'll explain more of that in a minute. But here's what we do, the flip side of that in the church. If you now are a part of the body of Christ, you've been wed to Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. The problem we have is we keep going back and allowing ourselves to be placed under the law. And I would say this, in the same way that a woman who's married to a man goes and attaches herself to another man, she's an adulteress, I believe there's times that we commit adultery against God. Because rather than remaining under His umbrella, we go back into the old stuff that we've been set free from. The old sins the old legal system, the old law, and we become adulterers. So it is till death do us part. Well, let's look at the purpose of the marriage. And this is interesting. Let me read these next just few verses, 4 through 6 of chapter 7. Therefore, Paul says that a lot, by the way. Paul teaches, and then he gives this word, therefore. What he's basically saying is, okay, because that's true, let me tell you the application of that. 
Let me tell you the results of that. Therefore, my brethren, again using the word brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of life in the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you hear what he said? You have been made to die. And then he tells us how that happened. And the word that he uses there, were made to die, is a passive verb indicating that this didn't happen naturally, that the death was not a natural death, and it wasn't that the believer caused his or her own death. It's that God supernaturally caused you to die. How? Through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and we accept that, we become believers, then we are united with him in his death. Paul put it this way elsewhere. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So the, the thing that Paul's trying to get through their mind is your whole life, you've been trying to just do these laws, and you've come to understand you can't do it. But we're operating under a new system now. God, the penalty for not being able to keep the law is death. Either you pay it or somebody pays it on your behalf. What Paul's teaching is Jesus has already paid that on your behalf. And you were made to die. Just like the woman who was bound to her husband. You've been made to die. And so you're now dead to the law. Now, before you jump too far down the road, the last point is going to deal with the fact that the law is not a bad thing. In fact, we're still instructed to keep it, but I'm going to tell you how we do it. He says, you were made to die, and how you did it was through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another. In order that, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of the marriage. In order that you might bear fruit for God. It goes on to kind of unpack the fact that you were bearing fruit for death, but you now bear fruit for God. How do we do that? What kind of fruit is he talking about? The word fruit is used throughout the New Testament. And I kind of wanted to divide it into two specific categories. One, this is not the best word, okay? It's the best word I could come up with, is, is attitude. It really has to do with character. It has to do with what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. The moment you trust Christ, this fruit begins to be produced in your life. It's from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me say a couple of things about that. Number one, that's not the fruits of the Spirit. Although there's nine things up there, it is the fruit of the Spirit. You don't say, well, I got seven out of nine. If you've come to Christ, He's working these things in your life. And I, and I didn't have a great, you know, this kind of comes from the inside out. It has to do with attitude. But this also will produce action. I mean, for example, go back to the verse. The fruit of the Spirit is love. As a believer, if I'm a child of God, one of the things that ought to become increasingly evident in my life, it might not have been there at all the day I trusted Christ. And it may be a slow work in my life. 
Well, one of the things that God's going to be producing in my life is love, and it's the word agape. It means unconditional love. It means treating people the way God would treat them, seeing people through God's eyes, loving them. And, folks, that may take prayer. You may notice today, God, I really struggle with that. Well, the reason you're struggling with it, hopefully, is because you're a child of God and he's working something in your life that is totally contrary to your old nature. Your old nature was not about loving the unlovely. It was about loving people who did stuff for you. That's the way the world operates. But love. Another fruit is joy. Another part of what Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit in your life is joy. There's a big difference in happiness and joy. Happiness is real external. It's about what happens to you that makes you happy. Joy is about something that happens in you. Joy is not the absence of sorrow. It is the presence of God. You can experience joy at a funeral. How? Because it's from God, not from you. It's not from circumstances. And you go down that list and you see these nine things that God is working in you. And I want you to hear this clearly. These are not optional. We're not grading on the curve here. Seven or eight is good. No. All nine of these things are evidences of God's work in your life. If you're a child of God, you will bear fruit the first one's about attitude the second's about action let me share one other verse from from jesus this is john chapter 15 i'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it why so that it will bear more fruit you're already clean because of the word which i've spoken to you abide in me and i in you As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Two things I really want you to get from that is this. If you're a child of God, you will bear fruit. If you have an apple tree in your yard, and the apple tree does not produce fruit, there's a problem with the apple tree. Now, I don't have any apple trees in my yard. i got an oak tree. I would be crazy to go out to this oak tree and just say, come on, produce an apple. And would I be surprised to walk out one day and on the ground there's an apple laying under the oak tree? Well, you're smart. If I go out and there's an oak tree and there's an apple under it, how did that apple get there? It didn't fall off that tree. One of the things my father-in-law liked to do after church on Sunday, this was when I was dating my wife, my girlfriend at the time, he would push back from the table a lot of times and ask this question. So, what did you think of the preacher's sermon? And I'll just be honest with you. There's a lot of times I'm going, I don't even remember the sermon. But I'd just say, oh, that was good. He talked about sin and Jesus. I'm against sin, I'm for Jesus. How's that? But one day he pushed back and he said this. He said, you know, fruit don't fall too far from the tree. You ever heard that? Well, it's true. It's it's talking a lot about children a lot of times end up being like their parents. But in this case, you're not going to get an apple off an oak tree. But you also notice this. You're never going to go to an apple tree and see the apple tree straining. Trying to push an apple out. Why doesn't it strain? It's because the natural byproduct of an apple tree is apples. 
I want you to get this. The natural byproduct of the Christian life is fruit. Those nine things I indicated, but also the other fruit that God's going to do in your life. And you're saying, well, Robert, fill in the blanks. What's that mean for me? I'm not God. You're asking me God questions. Let me tell you what it means for me. God called me to be a pastor. He hadn't called all of you to be a pastor. God's called me to be the pastor of Garden City Chapel. He hadn't called all of you to do that. So the question is, you ask, God, what is it you want me to do? Galatians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 we memorize, but a lot of times we forget verse 10. 8 and 9 talks about, about the fact you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. But verse 10 says this, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, where we get it backwards is a lot of times we don't know verse 10, but we're doing verse 10 thinking it's going to earn us eternal life. doesn't work that way. And the most frustrated person on the planet is the person that will try to produce fruit that looks like it came from God, and yet you don't know God. If you're trying to produce Jesus' fruit and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's impossible. That's why it's so frustrating. Anytime you're asked to do something that's impossible for you to do... That's frustrating, right? And yet there's some people in your church that are trying to do that. They've pretty much given up on the Christian life because they're frustrated. They can't do what they feel like they're being asked to do. The problem is they don't know Jesus. And they may be a member of the church. They may be on staff of the church. Jesus says what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you don't have to strain to make it happen. You just reside in Christ, and it will happen. And God will prune you. I've never heard a grapevine cry or whimper when it gets pruned, but it's necessary. As you prune things, it's able to actually be more fruitful. And there's times when that pruning in our life feels real painful. And yet, understand, you're being pruned by a Father who loves you. So Paul says, while in the flesh, my sinful passions were aroused by the law. It was at work in my body to bear fruit for death. You've been called for something different now. But having died, we were bound, but now we serve, literally to be a slave. Not in the letter of the old law, but in newness of spirit. Let me explain that for a minute. Paul says, I now serve. In fact, it's the word to be a slave. You've now become a bond slave willingly. You've given yourself over to the lordship of Christ. He's begun a work in you that he's promised to complete. In the process of that, you are serving him. I've heard some people say, you know what? I want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. (laughs) It's not what God's looking for. God's looking for you to come to him and say, God, whatever you've got for me to do, I'm yours. I serve you willingly out of a newness of the spirit, not out of oldness. In fact, the word for old there means worn out or not recent. Here's how you know the difference. Is your service to Christ about pleasing God or about pleasing you? 
Have there ever been times you've said to God, oh, God, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that, but don't ask me to do. As soon as you say to God, don't ask me to, is when God's got to go to work in your life. And it may not even be that he wanted you to do the thing you didn't want to do, but he's got to bring you to the point where you're saying, God, even that. Two things I told God I wouldn't do when I went to seminary. Number one, I wouldn't go on the foreign mission field. I remember the exact spot in Fort Worth, Texas, where I finally surrendered that to Christ. And I meant it. So I was ready to go. I was excited about it. And as soon as I said yes, God said, well, that's not what I want you to do. The second thing I didn't want to do is work with teenagers. Church called me. Asked me to be their youth pastor. This is how the committee meeting went. I said, God's called me. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm not going to really work with teenagers, but I'll do it while I'm in seminary. God started working on me and broke my heart. I remember the camp I was at outside of Dallas, Texas, when walking down a dirt road, I finally said, yes, God. And I want to say to you now, the most excited group of people I speak to is teenagers. The most excited I am about speaking to them. They might not be excited at all about it. But I still love speaking to middle school and high school students. Now, why did I tell you all that? I was a believer when I said both of those things no to Christ. And yet God began this work in my life to bring me to the point where I would say yes. I was submitting to his lordship. So I'm asking you the question. I can't fill in your blanks for you. But what is it God's called you to do? Know this. He's called you to something. So what is it? And you need to be asking God, God, here, I will do whatever you ask me to do. You show me what it is you want me to do. And what God will begin to do is give you a desire. I think there's sometimes we feel guilty for what we feel like God's called us to do. I've heard people say it this way. Well, this is kind of what I want to do, but I'm not sure it's what God wants me to do. Well, you've got to be careful. But if you're walking with Christ, maybe the reason you want to do that is because he's brought you under his lordship. And now that is the most exciting thing you can think of. He's given you a passion for it. Where earlier it was something you would have run from. So do you seek to please God or you? And then really the bottom line, whose approval are you seeking anyway? If you've ever thought, you know, I don't mind serving God. I just don't like being treated like a servant. Humanly speaking, that's kind of what we think. But sometimes you'll get treated like a servant. By the way, that's what Jesus did, Philippians chapter 2. Let me get to the last point and we're done. Verses 7 through 13. The purpose of the law then. Great question. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to, know law, come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, 
Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. A little confusing. Let me explain it. What shall we say then? Paul has spent so much time talking about, about the fact you're dead to sin. He's trying to make the point now to Jews, but to us, to say, listen, the law wasn't bad. The law had a purpose. The law wasn't sin. In fact, the law has not been done away with. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. So in case you're thinking, hey, I'm in Christ and I don't have to obey any of those laws. Yes, you do. Now you have the ability to do it. You don't obey the law because uh, you don't obey the law in hopes that God will love you. You obey the law because he does love you and you have a relationship with him. I love it when Paul asks these questions and then says, may it never be literally a thousand times. No, Paul's asking questions that he knows they're going to be thinking. And maybe they hadn't said it out loud, but he's saying, let me let me ask the question you might be thinking. A thousand times no, in fact, contrary to that, the exact opposite of that. Law's not sin. Law was good. Paul said, I'd have never come to understand sin, even though the Bible tells us that the law of God was written on our heart. So even before it was on a stone tablet or even before I was taught it, I knew right and wrong. But it became real obvious, real apparent when I understood the law of God. And he says, sin taking an opportunity, literally the starting point. Sin used the law as a beachhead of operation to show me that I was a sinner, to make sin utterly sinful. It produced in me coveting of every kind. Paul says, when I really understand that I wasn't supposed to covet, it made me want to covet. What is it about human nature that when you see a sign that says wet paint, do not touch, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, how many of you have ever touched? All right, put your hands. How many of you have ever lied in church? <laughs> Man, I have. I've gone up, and, and what goes through my mind is, I bet it's not really wet. Doesn't look wet. I bet it's dry by now. Oh, man, I got green all over my fingers. Why is it when you see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass? You just have this urge. Oh, I've got I to walk on it. We have some rules here on campus. One of them is no smoking on campus. And one of our staff walked up to an adult that was smoking behind one of the dorms, on the steps right there behind one of the dorms. And he said, sir, I, I need to ask you not to do that. There, we have a rule. And he said, oh, I knew it was a rule. I thought it was one of our rules. I didn't know it was one of y'all's rules. So what the guy's saying is, I knew I was breaking the rule. I just wasn't sure whose rule it was. <laughs> Makes no sense. The one that really cracks us up is when we have groups call and say, now, I know the rule about so-and-so, but, and our thought is, no, then you don't really get the rule. The rule actually applies to you. For some reason, we, I don't know, we just have this human nature that either the law doesn't apply to us, applies to everybody but us, or when you know it's a rule, you kind of want to break it. Paul says it produced in me every kind of coveting. And Paul knew he was utterly a sinner. And he said, when the commandment came, 
Listen to this. I'm almost done. Sin became alive. I can't put it anywhere better than John Bunyan did in Pilgrim's Progress. A great illustration of how sin arouses in you this understanding of the law. So I'm just going to read the illustration. A large dust-covered room in interpreter's house symbolizes the human heart. When a man with a broom representing God's law begins to sweep, the dust swirls up and all but suffocates Christian. That is what the law does to sin. It so agitates sin that it becomes stifling. And just as the broom cannot clean a room of dust but only stir it up, so the law cannot clean the heart of sin but only make the sin more evident and unpleasant. Paul says, when sin became alive, I died. It, it stirred up all the dust in my heart. And, and the broom, sin couldn't clean it. It just made it so apparent and so evident. And here's what happened through sin. It deceived me. Literally, it means to seduce holy, to cheat or to delude. Let, let me give you two ways that sin will deceive you specifically in coming to Christ. One of the things it will do is some people, I don't identify with this group, but some people will actually think, I'm too good. I've done a pretty good job of keeping the law. You'll ask some people, have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And they'll say, well, no, I'm, I'm a good person. And they'll typically say, I haven't done this, 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 and this. Well, bless your heart. So you feel pretty good about yourself then. There's some people that actually feel that way. Maybe some of you here, I, I've never felt that way. I felt the other way. The other way sin will deceive you is you're too bad. God can't possibly love you. Look at what you've done. Can we just get this straight, folks? Listen, Jesus died for sinners. Paul said, I'm the chief. Look up sin in the dictionary. According to Paul, his picture would be there to illustrate it. What's Paul saying? Sin will deceive you into either thinking you're better than you are or then you're worse than God can save. So don't allow sin to deceive you because ultimately it wants to kill you and not just, I mean, literally kill you outright to destroy you. It wants you to perish, to be destroyed utterly. So Paul says, so then the law is really holy. The law is good because it pointed out sin in my life. And Paul will go in to the end of chapter 7 where he basically says, here's what happens in my life. I, The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I don't want to do, I do. Now, if you want to get confused, read commentaries on that passage. Because a lot of folks disagree about whether Paul's talking about himself or some imaginary figure. I think he's talking about himself because he keeps using the word I. Therefore, may it never be, but rather sin in order to be shown to be sin, affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Last thought is this. Paul's saying it would become utterly sinful. Literally, it would outpace everything else. It was like a throwing beyond. 
It's like you're working on the shot put team. And it's, it's that sin put the shot put out there ahead of everything else so that you would realize I'm desperately needy for a Savior. That's the purpose. Law isn't bad. Paul says the commandments are holy. They're righteous. They're good. Jesus didn't come to do away with them. He came to fulfill them. But folks, the whole purpose was to show me, to show you, that I can't achieve the righteousness of God in my own goodness. Not being a pastor, not going to seminary, not learning Scripture, not sharing my faith, none of those things, which are good things, earns me my salvation. It was when I, as an early teen, came to the Lord and said, I recognize that I'm a sinner. It's real personal, me. And I want Jesus Christ to forgive me. I understand that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I now come in faith to a Savior. And God began a work in me that day to produce the fruit we talked about. How about you? Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, what a powerful passage. And Lord, we've only scratched the surface. I I acknowledge that. But Lord, it really is good news. And so Father, if there's someone in this place this morning who may have tried their best and they realize they are utterly frustrated because their best has never been good enough. God, I pray today would be the day of surrender for them where they come empty-handed before a God who loves them and says, hey, I'm a sinner and I recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And so I want to ask you to do what I cannot do for myself. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you cleanse me? Would you become my Lord and Savior? Would you begin that work in me and continue it to completion? Father, do that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a closing.